Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the last days leading up to the Iowa caucuses on Monday, with the final candidates debate tonight on CNN between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, which will pale in terms of ratings up against a Fox News town hall with Donald Trump, which is likely to be replete with wild accusations and fact-free assertions. Joining us for an appraisal of the candidates is Robert Leonard, News Director for KNIA, KRLS, Knoxville and Pella, Iowa, where he covered the current and the last several Iowa caucuses. He's an anthropologist and author of Yellow Cab, Deep Midwest and Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster. Then we'll look into yesterday's televised mayhem in Ecuador, where gangs took over live TV broadcasts, terrifying news anchors showing police held hostage at gunpoint, begging for their lives. Joining us to discuss how Ecuador is close to a failed state, descending into gang violence, and the role of Mexican drug cartels in the chaos, is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. The president of the Association of Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico, and her forthcoming book is Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S.-Mexico Border. Then finally, we'll assess the asymmetrical clashes in the Red Sea between the powerful navies of the U.S. and other coalition partners and the Houthi rebels who just fired salvos of drones, cruise missiles and ballistic missiles at ships and towards Israel. We will speak with Charles Schmitz, a professor of geography at Towson University. He has researched and written extensively on Yemen and its relationship with other nations on the Arabian Peninsula and with the United States, and joins us to discuss how attacking Houthi bases in Yemen is unlikely because it could upend the country's peace deal close to resolution. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. 
So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's solemn majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Robert Leonard, the News Director for KNIA and KRLS Knoxville and Pella, Iowa, where he covered the last several Iowa caucuses. He's an anthropologist and the author of Yellow Cab, Deep Midwest, and Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Leonard. Good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. And how's the roller coaster been this year, particularly now that uh, tonight in Des Moines, Fox News will have a town hall with Donald Trump that will be unfiltered and live, which is a, a bit of a risk for them since uh, they've been pre-taping him because of the massive uh, payout they had to make recently and following, of course, the CNN town hall where Trump made a, a lot of um, wild accusations. But nevertheless, that's taking place as at the same time that CNN is holding it, the final debate between the uh, two that are left uh, below Trump, of course, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. So give us your take on this year's roller coaster. Well, DeSantis started off strong and then slowly faded. Um, I mean, he's still doing fairly well, but sort of some unforced errors and some media coverage that I didn't think was fantastic. I mean, the whole big deal about putting fingers and his white boots. I mean, there's better things we could have been talking about, such as his policies. He started strong, you know, um, problems with his pack and people, you know, didn't have the discipline to be quiet. And so that sort of hurt him. Whatever you see in the media, if you don't see him on the ground, it's a whole different thing. He's a lot better live. Um, and people don't pick apart his, you know, mannerisms or way of speaking or something. But they love him. But, you know, it's he's faded a little bit. Then Nikki Haley has come on. Nikki Haley has great rallies. Um, she hasn't been here as much as DeSantis. Uh, she's, you know, more reasonable. Um, my sort of traditional conservative friends love her. And uh, the... Anybody that they love Trump, they don't like her. She's not strong enough. She's a compromiser to them. Um, the Trump uh, organization, well, Vivek Ramaswamy has been very interesting. He's, you know, still trying. But, I mean, he was very interesting to have around, very personable guy, uh, just sort of faded after Nikki sort of took him apart. You know, I forget the exact words, but about how she feels stupid every time she talks to him. He's a... You know, he's a really, you know, interesting guy to talk to. But Trump is just way out there. His rallies are fantastic. Um, all kinds of people there. He's, uh, you know, leading by 35 points the last time I looked. Haley and, and DeSantis are about at 17 each. So it's a race for second. One thing that you might want to think about, too, is Monday, our weather in Des Moines, which is sort of in the center of the state, south central part, the high is minus five, the low is minus 10. And so people are expected to get out for, uh, you know, two or three hours in that weather. And, you know, it's been several days of bad weather. We've I just helped dig somebody out of a foot of snow. And so I tell you, I don't know how strong Haley or DeSantis supporters are. But the Trump MAGA army will be there. So there are reports in NB on NBC and other outlets suggesting, and you mentioned about your friends that support Nikki Haley, uh, 
Is it true that a lot of potential Republican Iowa voters who don't want to vote for Trump and want to vote somebody else don't talk about it, that there's a backlash if you talk openly against Trump? Yeah, there's a backlash. I was at a Trump rally the other day and Trump was spouting his usual nonsense. And one guy I was talking to before, you know, seemed like a Trump supporter, but then he muttered under his breath a couple of times. That's a lie. That's not true. And the people around him just, you're in the wrong room, buddy, get out. And it was just like, no, you really can't do that. Um, or you'll, you know, they're, they know that people don't like them and they're, and they're really some of them have a hair trigger, others don't, but it's, they just, you know, it's, they're all in on Trump and don't see, you know, anything. He's, he's the anti-hero. He does everything that they wish they could do. They'll forgive him every lie, every sin, just they like that he, um, you know, busts things up and they're in with him. He does some really interesting things at the rally. You know, he, he comes out to Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. But you know, when a normal politician enters the room, the music fades and they start to speak. He stands there in his majesty, looking out at his adoring fans. And if the crowd is 3,000 people, he tries to catch the eye of everybody. And he waits until the music is totally over, you know, three minutes of song, whatever it is. He just stands there and soaks it in and makes an intimate connection with everybody in the audience and there's before there's dancing there's music it's a festival nobody else comes close to that so how are you going to do a caucus under these conditions if people are intimidated isn't that what happens everybody's in a room and they sort of huddle in different groups and you know in support of different candidates how's it going to work out if if there's an air of intimidation That's well, that's sort of what happens with the Democratic caucuses. You gather in your preference groups, and if somebody doesn't hit, well, in the past ones, if somebody doesn't hit until they, the DNC blew them up, but until somebody hits a 15% viability point, and then you have to reorganize, go to your second best choice until finally the caucus can, you know, coalesces around one individual. So the Republicans come in and, and they have different speakers, but it's a secret ballot. So people can vote whoever they want to. What's interesting to me is Haley is within striking distance with Trump in New Hampshire. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if people think maybe we want to hitch our ride to Haley, if she's going to do well in New Hampshire and then go to her home state. And if her home state, you know, advances her, you know, she's competitive. We'll see what else happens Super Tuesday, all of that. But the best shot is for Haley to come out of it, I think. But, you know... DeSantis is still strong. He's been here more than Haley. He's had more town halls than Haley. I've seen him more than Haley. She's, you know, spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, but um, it's a it's a secret ballot on the Republican side for people can so people can vote for who they want to. So DeSantis pretty much put all these eggs in the Iowa basket, didn't he? Yeah, and that's a mistake. And I don't know why people don't realize that's a mistake. Remember when Rudy Giuliani said he didn't have to 
go to New, to Iowa or I think New Hampshire. I think he was going to start off in Florida. That's a mistake. You play all the you play the top two states, maybe the top three now. You play them all, and because it it doesn't work, you can't put all of your eggs in one basket. You look at Chris Christie out there. I think Iowans would have liked him, but I mean he's refreshing, but he isn't going anywhere. That's the one lesson every campaign should learn. You. Uh, Pending what happens ultimately with the Democratic caucuses, but the Republicans, I bet, will still come here, and uh, you know, it's and they need to go to New Hampshire too, and South Carolina, and Nevada. They need to go. They need to do it all. So back to the debate tonight on CNN between Nikki Haley and DeSantis, which is up against the Fox News town hall with Donald Trump, and as I mentioned previously, they've taped Trump. They're wary of, uh, after these massive payouts and lawsuits, etc., one of which is uh, still pending. Do you expect it to be pretty lively? I mean, uh, given that the CNN town hall that Trump did a while back was also pretty lively and replete with incredible falsehoods that weren't checked, even though the CNN anchor did did her best, Caitlin Collins. Well, we'll see which Trump shows up. Sometimes he's really lucid and really on his game, and sometimes he's just wacko talking about Agnes don't work underwater and he could have resolved the civil. I mean, he's two different people. I mean, I think that his age is getting to him. He can't pull it together like he used to be able to. So we'll see who shows up. We'll see if he has any discipline. But you know what? His followers don't care. They don't care. And so he can say anything. He's lied, what, 31,000, well, 30,000 times when he was in the presidency. They don't care. It doesn't care. They can hold all these things in their heads. They can think that the FBI was behind it, that Antifa was behind January 6th. And then at the same time in their head, they could think, oh, the January 6th people in jail are hostages. Both can't be true. And so they can hold it all in their heads at the same time. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Trump's their guy. That, you know, that strong 30, 35% base, whatever he's got, he's got a low floor and a high ceiling, as they say. And has he spent much time there? It seems like he's been there a lot, but of course he has to keep flying out for court appearances in Washington and and in New York. Well, um, the Des Moines Register caucus poll, or caucus tracker, rather, has him here since March 13th. It has him here 25 times. And it seems like he's here a lot. I mean, a lot more when he was in, and then in 2016, his ground game is incredible. The way he uh, approaches people, his team is incredible. And so you can say, well, you know, um, oh, Ron DeSantis has been to all 99 counties. Well, the thing is, is that Trump's 25 rallies pack a punch as big as 100 of DeSantis or Haley rallies. So, I mean... I think 25 times for Trump, that's more than I expected. It doesn't seem like his uh, court problems have slowed him down, as many in the media, including me, thought that it would slow him down. certainly would have to. It hasn't. And he's got a lot of energy. And he will go on and on and on. And uh, hour, I think an hour is the shortest one I've, I've seen him do. He'll go two hours sometimes. That seems to be what makes him <laughs> happy, I guess. He really is more comfortable doing rallies. He's certainly more comfortable doing rallies than he is governing. When he was in the White House, he watched TV all day. 
But this seems to be his, what, adrenaline uh, that gives him oxygen? How, do you, how would you describe it? If you or I had adoring fans like that, and we were speaking, and everything we said was golden, it would get to be, you know, Addictive. our egos. Yeah. yeah. It would, you know, if I could do that or if you could do that, wouldn't that be fun? I'd be scared that people were following me so strongly, but no, he eats it up. He's just this narcissistic, um, belligerent, no, the truth doesn't bother bother him at all. He's an anti-hero for them. It doesn't matter. I mean, I was watching the Highland with Kevin Costner uh, the other night and, and, uh, Oh, I forget all the other people. Can't and it was the Highwayman. It was the story of Bonnie and Clyde, and why and people adored Bonnie and Clyde, even though they were shooting up people all over the Midwest and South. They adored them, and it's the same thing with Trump. It's anti-hero, and my and my problem with all of this is it seems that you know the leaders of the Republican Party. They're all trying to be anti-heroes, too. When has Marjorie Taylor Greene ever tried to do anything but be disruptive? Matt Gates, uh, the new Speaker Johnson, they all want to be these unconventional, unconventional cowboy types. And that's not the leader. Those are the disruptors. And so the whole party is going to have to pull itself back from there and, and their best shot if it's, if it's going to happen from the abyss, and it is an abyss, it's an abyss for the, the party and maybe for democracy if they don't pull it out. And um, I think the choice is Nikki Haley. I think that um, she's the most reasonable. She has a, an honest, clear vision on, on foreign policy. Uh, um, DeSantis is weak need on Ukraine. I mean, my God, weak need on Ukraine and, and the, you know, the members of the party follow it. She's, uh, she has a chance to win. And, and bottom line, I don't think DeSantis, he's going to be more destructive than Trump. And so I don't think that, you know, DeSantis is a good answer, but, you know, a lot of people do. Um, and again, he's better here than if you see him only on TV. Now the media portrays him on TV and what they talk about, you know, it's just... His biggest applause line is when he talks about how gleeful it is for him to fly immigrants out of Texas into northern city. He's gleeful, and that's his biggest applause line. The Iowa Republicans before, you know, that support him, they love his cruelty, and he will be cruel. And in fact, you know, he's going to take, um, you know, any of the other kinds of people that are backing Trump, the other disruptors like Mike Flynn and Steve Bannon. I think that if Trump, you know, if DeSantis were to win, they're going to slide in right behind DeSantis because he can do what Trump did and he's going to be better and more ruthless at it. So I think if the Republicans are smart, they get behind Nikki Haley. Well, I thank you for joining us here today. I really appreciate it, Robert Leonard, and the fact that you have made, been able to meet all these people often and close up and personal, I really appreciate your analysis. Well, and I appreciate what you do, Ian. Thanks for thanks for all of it. 
And again, I've been speaking with Robert Leonard, who's the news director for KNIA KRLS Knoxville and Pella, Iowa, where he covered the last several Iowa caucuses. He is an anthropologist and author of Yellow Cab, Deep Midwest, and Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how Ecuador is close to a failed state following yesterday's televised mayhem on Ecuador where gangs took over live TV broadcasts, terrifying news anchors showing police held hostage at gunpoint, begging for their lives. Back on track. Our values are under attack now. And the bad guys get the benefits. The rest of us pay their way. Patriots are under attack. Just for having their say While I'm riding down Freedom Road Agents on my tail You wave a flag on Christmas Day They'll throw you in jail Hey! Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration route supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons, the president of the Association of Borderland Studies. Her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico. And her forthcoming book is Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S.-Mexico Border. Welcome to Background Briefing, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. Thank you, Ian, for the invitation to be in your, in your show. So, Guadalupe, what is the connection then between Ecuador, which is descending into gang violence, and we'll talk about the horrific capture live on television of television anchors uh, pleading for their lives with gunmen holding assault rifles to their heads and Ecuadorian police begging for their lives, uh, which obviously shocked the entire population of Ecuador. But what's the connection between the work that you do on drugs, gangs, and human trafficking on the border with what's happening in Ecuador? Absolutely. Um, uh, The events that took place uh, yesterday and have been taking place in the past few days in the country that have to do with the participation of different criminal organizations and uh, some leaders uh, that are supposedly connected with Mexican criminal organizations. Um, Some people, some journalists and investigators have been saying that some of the Equatorian groups that were um, highlighted as responsible for the violent events of yesterday, for example, an organization called Los Choneros has some links with the Sinaloa Cartel and uh, another rival group, Los Lobos or the Wolves um, in English, is related with the uh, Jalisco New Generation Cartel. The two uh, Mexican criminal organizations that fight for the control of different parts of the Mexican Republic and the main plazas or the main territories for the drug trade um, in in Mexico. Therefore, supposedly, these um, you know the events have to do with confrontations between the groups and a connection 
with Mexican uh, criminal organizations. We don't know exactly to what extent this is connected with Mexican organized crime, but um, there are some connections that have been displayed um, in different moments at different moments. Um, and for example, also Jose Adolfo Macias Salazar, he was known as El Fito, one of the most dangerous criminals in Ecuador, um, escaped from prison. And supposedly he had some links with Los Chapitos, which are the the sons of um, uh, of, of El Chapo Guzman, who had a trial in the United States, was extradited, arrested in Mexico and extradited to the United States. So is the connection then that the cocaine is comes from Ecuador and neighboring states and it's then transported up to Mexico and then into the United States. So that, is that the fundamental connection? That is what has been reported as the connection between the groups that operate in Ecuador and the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco New Generation cartel. We need more information about the specific uh, details about these alleged connections, but definitely. Um, the production of cocaine mainly is made in Colombia, but because of the connections of the Colombian government, at least the, the past few governments with the United States made Venezuela, uh, Peru and Ecuador in particular because of uh, some of its politics and some of its um, uh, governments um, not connected with the with the alliance or not aligned with the United States, um, you know, transform these sites as, as very important sites of the, for the drug trade, but in particular, uh, Venezuela and Ecuador. So criminal groups have been operating there, very well organized groups have been operating in, in those countries, those Indian, uh, Indian countries, um, in particular Ecuador and Venezuela. So let's talk about what happened yesterday where terrified journalists were in the nation's capitals that on the main TV network were forced to kneel. Gunmen were holding assault rifles to their heads, pleading for their lives. Also, police officers uh, were also pleading for their lives, having been kidnapped. And as I mentioned earlier, this has clearly traumatized the entire population of Ecuador who saw all this stuff live on television. What does it say about the government itself. I mean, now that Ecuador's president, Daniel Noboa, is deploying the military, but I don't think anybody's particularly confident who is running Ecuador. I mean, are the gangs that powerful? It is a very, uh, it was a very important question, and the situation is complicated. Absolutely, uh, what happened yesterday gives the impression that the Ecuadorian state does not monopolize um, security, uh, doesn't have the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence. And these groups are the ones that are doing this. However, it's very interesting to see how groups that supposedly should operate in silence, should operate without being noticed because this is a business, are doing it uh, in, I mean, for the international media to cover this. This is very, who is behind these groups? and which political groups within Ecuador are interested in Daniel Novoa's government to look so weak and to lose the control of the whole country. We have to ask that. Um, what, what happened yesterday is not just probably the product of 
some groups fighting for control of drugs uh, or drug routes or drug plazas or drug territories for our territories for the drug trade. Uh, we might we might be talking about uh, political forces that are behind these groups too, uh, but definitely what we observed, what we saw yesterday, plus uh, different events that had to do with uh, with with the with the with the prison system and attacks to a university and other organizations, um, are showing definitely weakness of of, the, of Daniel Novoa's uh, new government in. And the, of course, the reaction of this is going to put the citizenry under more stress because of the utilization of the military stage of siege and, uh, and other measures that, that are also um, calling the attention of the international community. But just only a few years ago, there were absolutely hideous sprees of murder sprees inside uh, prisons particularly in the literal prison, where 123 prisoners were murdered in a gang fight. And a lot of this has to do with this character called Fito, Fito de la Roca. He seems to be almost a mythical figure in Ecuador, a gang leader. They write songs about him, etc. So tell us about Fito. Well, I mean, Fito is just a figure, um, an iconic figure that shows the control that criminal organizations, in this case, he is a criminal leader, one of the most dangerous criminals in Ecuador. He escaped from prison, which means that uh, his leadership or his capacity to have control over the surveillance in the prisons has been lost by the by the authorities of Ecuador. Uh, he's just a representation of what, what was happening in the prison system in Ecuador, but not just in Ecuador. The prison system in several countries of Latin America is uh, under threat and is not being in control of government forces, but more is in control of the criminals. Definitely, if we're talking about the last stage of the justice system, which is the prison system, and it's um, controlled or uh, some prisons are controlled by organized crime, we have a very, very important issue with regards to, um, I mean, to the justice system, the lack of justice in these countries and the institutional weakness is, is, is very prevalent in Ecuador. We don't have a prison system that works. So how are you going to, uh, to, to search for justice, right? It's, it's just, it's just one more, um, one more symbol that, that, uh, that the institutional framework is very weak and the, 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 the weakness of the, of the state of Ecuador is also very visible. Well, President Naboa has declared a 60-day state of emergency as of Monday. And it is obviously, you know, the military's in the streets, etc. But he was elected, and he's only 36 years old, he was elected in the wake of the assassination of the presidential candidate, Fernando Villavicencio, back in August. So he's there because of a gang assassination, right? That was conducted by the gangs, wasn't that assassination? Exactly. Exactly. So this is not a an event that it's, um, you know, that's, that's, that's just, uh, that just happened. This is, uh, this is, this is one man, one more manifestation 
of the, as I said, the, the institutional weakness in the country, the lack of capacity of the Ecuadorian state. I am not talking about any person in particular or the president, but the, the, the rule of law, the weak rule of law in the country and the lack of justice and uh, many problems and the control of the, of the gangs, uh, I would say organized crime overall over uh, Ecuadorian main institutions. Ecuador has a problem and the state does not, mono I mean, does not have the, does not seem to have the monopoly over the legitimate use of force, the legitimate use of violence. And, and this is very worrisome. We'll see what happens after the 60 day of the state of emergency and the, the measures that are taken by the government, if the military really can control and take control and retake the control over over the main institutions um, of justice in in the country. Well, one of the police officers that were kidnapped and and were pleading for his life live on television yesterday, uh, he was forced to read a statement by the gangs warning Ecuador's president that quote you declared war you will get war, and in exchange the president has said declared that. The country's in a state of armed internal conflict, and they are basically going to redefine these criminal gangs as terrorist organizations. So I imagine that's sort of the gloves are coming off, isn't it, with military yeah. rule and that kind of notion that you're fighting internal terrorists. There's a lot of violence ahead, isn't there? It's clear that you're fighting internal terrorism because of the messages that have been sent and the utilization of uh, of of the of the media of national media and the messages that are that are directly uh, directed to to the to the Ecuadorian government. And this is definitely there's no question that the groups are perpetrating internal terrorist attacks. And this might redefine the conversation with regards to the participation of these groups in different countries. When this is so direct, when we're really talking about um, groups that are facing or threatening the the government on the, the whole state structure, I would say, not just that this particular government, because we're really talking here about state. Um, we are we're talking about terror. We're talking about terrorism, and we'll see what are the, going to be the measures and what's going to be the response of the international community in this regard because of the connections, or the alleged connections, if proven to be the case with with groups that operate in different countries. I'm talking about Mexico. So, just in closing, then Guadalupe, we started out talking about the Mexican connection to what's happening in Ecuador and how you mentioned how Ecuador and Venezuela have become important producing and distributing countries of cocaine because of they've essentially been uh, driven out of Colombia. And that's the main connection is where the drugs are, come from and supplying the Mexican cartels, you know, also supply the drugs clearly to the United States. That's where their main customers are. So let's talk about your new book, Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S.-Mexico Border. Since the border has become such a political football and you've got the new House Speaker holding up aid to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan 
in exchange for for Biden having to accept a very harsh Republican policies on the border, which of course will cost Biden politically. So what's really happening here in the United States is that nobody, at least the Republicans, are not serious about solving the border crisis. They're just essentially grandstanding and want to exploit it to hurt the Democrats, which is essentially what all that they are all about. So what's your sense of where uh, politics on the border are heading, given how toxic the whole situation is, with a massive flow of people still continuing to come from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, Guatemala, etc.? Yeah, this is very, very complex. What is happening at the border and what will happen this year? This is this is a uh, year of elections, presidential elections in the United States, also in Mexico. Uh, we are having uh, different um, uh, armed conflicts in different uh, armed conflicts in different parts of the world. The war is surrounding the conversation. Therefore, um, we are going to see a number of of policies or proposals or negotiations that, that have to do with, with, with global conflict, that have to do with what is happening in Russia, of course, you, you, Ukraine and, and, and the Middle East, and, or maybe in Taiwan. But at the same time, we're talking about a human tragedy, a human problem that has to do with, with the results of economic crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the necessity, the need, uh, environmental issues that are dri- dr- driving people out of their countries. And they are looking, searching for, for a better life in the global north, um, in Europe. Uh, in the United States in this case. And we're going to have a lot of conversations and a lot of misinformation, disinformation that have to do with political motivations too, because we're in in an electoral year. Uh, There's a lot of disingenuity. There's a lot of, um, you know, false uh, statements, propaganda. As I mentioned, misinformation, there will be more of this. uh, But we have to understand that there are root causes of these problems. Uh, poverty, inequality, abuse, extreme forms of capitalism that has that have um, uh, widened the gap between the rich and the poor. That is at the bottom line. And so we have to understand that we are also talking about people, not just about arms, not just about policies, not just about enforcement, not just about a homeland security. We're talking about human security too. We're talking about human beings that are trapped behind or within the, the, I mean, electoral or motivations for power of different groups, of economic and political powers, power of different groups. Well, just in closing, the, the Republicans are going to impeach the head of Homeland Security. I mean, what, what good is that going to do? I, I think that uh, there's a lot of propaganda. There is a lot of rhetoric here uh, without, um, you know, an understanding of what really needs to be done. It's great to have a line to threaten to put in jail uh, a person that's working, um, you know, within a project, within a, a, a certain perspective. Uh, but this, um, these extreme um, statements, this uh, extreme proposals, also have to do with the, 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 I mean, the fact that we are at a moment where elections are going to be taking place, and let's let's think about the different ways of of building this, uh, I mean, I mean, this momentum and to maintain the, their base of support by utilizing, um, supposedly, you know, these 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 accusations 
um, these major things, you know, put in prison the head of Homeland Security, build the wall, um, you know, shut the migrants that are trying to cross uh, without proper documentation illegally to the United States. Uh, all these, we're going to hear a lot of these, um, you know, major statements, um, extreme statements, exaggerated uh, statements, uh, because because this is this is electoral times and this is this works this is political marketing and unfortunately the there's no recognition of the of the root causes of of problems that are that are basically humane not just electoral or political well Guadalupe Correa Cabrera I thank you very much for joining us here today thank you very much Ian for your invitation to join uh, your show Again, I've been speaking with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office, of, Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons the president of the Association for Borderland Studies. Her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. And her forthcoming book is Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S.-Mexico Border. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the asymmetrical clashes in the Red Sea between the powerful navies of the U.S. and other coalition partners and the Houthi rebels. There's a place where I've been told Every street is paved with gold And it's just across the borderline Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Smits, a professor of geography at Towson University, who has researched and written extensively on Yemen and its relationships with other nations on the Arabian Peninsula and with the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Schmitz. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And Yemen's Houthis rebels are escalating their battle against uh, the U.S. and the U.K. navies, which are there to protect commercial shipping that has been attacked for some time now by Houthi rebels. They say they're doing it uh, only targeting Israeli ships, but they're not. They're targeting just anything that they, anything that uh, <laughs> that's floats by uh, in the Red Sea. And they say now that this barrage that was all shot down by U.S. and U.K. Navy ships was in response to the navy's shooting up a bunch of small ships that attacked both naval and commercial shipping in the red sea a few weeks ago so do you think this thing is going to uh, escalate to the point where the us and the uk and other nato and other countries will start attacking yemen itself um well so I, th I think if they if they did, it would be very limited in scope. Um, they really don't want to do that uh, because the, Yemen is close to 
concluding a a political settlement, which is uh, something that the United States and the Saudis have been very interested in for for a long time, uh, and they don't want to disrupt that process. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, particularly the Americans uh, are uh, um, responding. You know, Biden administration is responding to a domestic pressure to do something about this. Um, they, the, of course, the Bab al-Mandeb, the, the point at which uh, the Gulf of Aden uh, uh, goes into the Red Sea is a very important shipping uh, uh, passage. Uh, and they want to keep, of course, the commercial shipping lanes open. But they don't want a major confrontation with the Houthi. A couple of things about that. You know, in 2000, I think it was 17, uh, the Houthis fired, I think they fired a missile at a, at a U.S. Uh, ship or, or uh, you know, close to a U.S. ship. And uh, the United States responded and attacked uh, three uh, radar sites, I believe it was, on the coast. And that was the end of it. Uh, it didn't go any further. This is different. Uh, this is different because the Houthi are gaining tremendous um, political capital across the Arab world, within Yemen and across the Arab world, uh, with these actions. And they want to continue. They want to say that they are doing something, whereas the rest of the Arab world is, is not doing anything. They're actually helping uh, the Palestinians by, by you know, stopping shipping going to, to Israel. Um, so they are going to c- continue. Um, I, I think that, I mean, it seems to me that the U.S. is going to, the U.S. is going to continue their, their guard operation, but have very limited attacks on, on the Houthi. Uh, another thing to remember is that the Saudis, with U.S. support, bombed the Houthi for eight years, and it didn't to no effect in the sense that uh, the Houthi were able to withstand it. And I've seen that mentioned in a couple of articles that, you know, there are no real good targets uh, to hit. Um, the Houthi uh, are launching drones and, and their, their missiles, which are mobile, so they can move them around. It'd be difficult to do that. So I suspect that we're going to continue doing what we're doing at this point. Another important point to be made is that the majority of shipping is still going through. There was just a an analysis by Reuters that said that uh, most ships are continuing through. Uh, and so the Houthi haven't really disrupted uh, shipping all that much. Their impact isn't very much. Um, but that doesn't matter to the Houthi. For the Houthi, what's important is the symbolic uh, uh, impact, the fact that they're seen as doing something, even if they're not doing all that much, uh, is, is important to them. Well, the Houthis have carried out 26 attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea since the 19th of November. And this latest swarm attack that just happened, uh, the U.S. military and the British, they shot down 18 drones, two cruise missiles, one ballistic missiles, and apparently just uh, to shoot down one of these missiles, the uh, missile costs about $1.3 million dollars. And the drones, of course, are these cheap drones that uh, the Iranians are are selling to the Russians. So there's an asymmetry there. It's an expensive way to obviously counter. But will at some point the U.S. and the U.K. navies, and by the way, 
They're joined by Australia, Bahrain, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, South Korea, and Singapore. They're all involved in what they call Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea. What about this Iranian intelligence ship that's there in the Red Sea directing these attacks, uh, the MV Bashad? Will the U.S. and the U.K. navies do anything about that? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I don't know. What what I would say about that is that um, the, the Iranians are supplying. Uh, it's an intelligence ship. It's it's been on and off in the area for a long time, uh, and you know, I think the what, what's important to remember is that the Houthi are really. Um, they're they're backed by the Iranians, but they take their own decisions uh, and they they make their own decisions. So I would say that um, you know the Iranians are not telling the Houthi attack this ship. Or, or I would not think that the Iranians are are telling them attack this ship or, or attack this the other ship. Um, the Houthi are certainly capable of of garnering the information that they need to to target a ship. Um, the Iranians are, are are backing them, and and certainly some of the technology, as you pointed out, comes from from Iran. But it's a decision uh, by the Houthi. Now, if the Iranians feel that the Houthi um, actions are hurting Iran, uh, the Iranians would maybe counsel restraint or something like that. But the Houthi are are really their own their own actor. They're allied and and agree very much with Iran. They're backed by Iran. But they take their own decisions. So I would say this is largely a, a, a Houthi operation, not an Iranian one. But there's supposedly this swarm attack, it's supposedly in retaliation to the U.S. Navy uh, shooting up the speedboats that attacked some uh, commercial ships a week yeah. or so ago, and that they're uh, avenging these attacks. Yeah. So... The, again, <laughs> I mean, this is this is like uh, the mouse that roared. I mean, they're yes, they're just yes. pinpricks, you know. <laughs> yes. And of course, the, the asymmetry between the the weaponry, the drones that yes. the Houthis are firing cost seventeen thousand, or about twenty thousand yes. dollars each. They cost about twenty thousand dollars each, uh, whereas the missiles cost one point three million that shoot them down. So yes, it's a major uh, headache. Right. A major headache for the Biden administration. I mean, there's not a whole lot they can do. They have to. They do. So I said that. The, I said before that the Houthi are not really having much impact. They're certainly having an impact on uh, the Pentagon and having to pay money. And the Israelis as well. They have to keep. Uh, you know, some some they devote some attention to to uh, incoming uh, Houthi attacks. So in that sense, they are having some impact and i'm sure for the biden administration it's just really frustrating that uh you know the, the houthi who are loving this they they absolutely love taking on the the american uh power right the, that these little guys can can as you said a mouse that roared it it uh it, they love taking on the american superpower uh, and the Americans are kind of between a rock and a hard place because they really don't want to disrupt the political process that's happening in Yemen right now. Well, the, the Houthi spokesperson said the operation, in other words, a swarm attack, is an initial response to the treacherous assault on our naval mm. forces by the U.S. enemy forces. 
the na- their naval forces being a handful of um, small speedboats. Um, so I guess it's serious, even though it seems somewhat comical. Um, sure. I mean, for for ships in in going through the passage, yes, it's, it is a very serious situation. And the small ships, I assume, were meant to take another ship hostage, right? They have one already. Uh, and, you know, they'd like to take another one. Uh, and that's how they do it with the small ships. So actually, the one before, they, they landed some people in a, from a helicopter onto the ship when they took it hostage. Um, but, you know, that was before the, the large patrols. So it's going to be more difficult for the Houthi to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's um, for, for the U.S. military, I'm sure, U.S. And the, and the British military. The other coalition partners, of course, play much smaller roles. It's, it's largely a U.S. and, and British operation. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult, I'm sure. They, they, they are playing defense only on this. Well, so far, though, of course, they had an effect on global trade and uh, and uh, supply chains because 15% of global seaborne trade goes through the Red Sea, and according to the International Chamber of Shipping, 20% of the world's container ships are now avoiding yeah. the Red Sea, having to go around the southern tip of Africa. So this is uh, definitely disrupting and causing the obviously uh, price spikes in the goods that are being carried, so they are having having an effect. There's no question about them. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I saw, I read about a, a Reuters analysis this morning uh, that the level of shipping going through uh, the Red Sea hasn't gone down all that much. Uh, so we need to check those figures, the the 20% figures. I know that the the five large shipping firms had announced they were going to suspend temporarily, and they did suspend temporarily for a while. Um, but uh, despite that, apparently uh, the very large number of ships that do go through the Red Sea have have more or less continued. So uh, we need to we need to look into those numbers. So the Houthis call themselves Ansar Allah, partisans mm-hmm. of God. So how? I mean, they seem to be similar to Hezbollah, which is the party of God. And yes. you mentioned earlier that they get arms and training from the Iranians, but they don't necessarily do what the Iranians say. They have, they're have somewhat Correct. independent. But the yes. glue seems to be a kind of religious fervor, right? They're Zaydi Shia Muslims, right? Yeah, I wouldn't call it religious you know, it's it's it is so. So how do I say? It? The, the Houthi are rooted in religion, but they're really it's really a political movement. Uh, in other words, the, the main position of the Houthi uh, is that the Muslim world is weak, and the Muslim world is is weak because uh, it hasn't stood up to the Americans and, and Israel. And and that America and Israel are the main enemies of the Muslim world. This is the Iranian worldview, and and the Houthi very much agree with that. Uh, and there's not much religion to that. That's a geopolitical stance. Um, there there are some some religious aspects to it, but they're they're minor. This is not really a, a religious re- revival as much as is uh, a political one. Uh, within Yemen, the Houthi. Um, come from a class of people who uh, had been supported 
uh, supportive of the amendment that ruled Yemen for for a thousand years, and that was overthrown in 1962. And those people, the the Sada, the, the, the we can call them like a, a religious aristocracy, people that that uh, claimed descent from the Prophet, they they had been marginalized to some extent. Although there's there's this is a contested issue, uh, but marginalized to some extent from the Republic and. And amongst them, this is this is the the group of people that the Houthi very much um, uh, relied upon in their in their initial building of the movement, um, and and that aspect is religious, but um, it's it's really about uh, the Houthi power within Yemen, and and then uh, the Houthi or Muslim power as they see it uh, in in the rest of the world. It's a geopolitical stance rather than a religious one. But you saying, and, and I guess this is the main takeaway, that the U.S. and the U.K. are restrained. And by the way, a lot of the other countries that I mentioned in this uh, coalition don't want to be identified uh, as, as right. participating. Right. But the point is that what's more important is to end that civil war that's killed more than 150,000 yes. people and left 21 million in destitution. And the yes. U.N. has said it's the greatest humanitarian disaster on the planet. I guess that's been eclipsed by what's happening in Gaza now, but still. And just in closing, though, do you think that will, in fact, end? Do you think that they're... Uh, yes, they, they, appear, they appear. I mean, it's, it's, it's very slow, painful negotiations, uh, but fighting has, has, uh, sub, has subsided over the last two years. It's really not flared up too much. And they do appear uh, getting close to some kind of a political settlement, which is what's necessary to end the war completely. Um, uh, and uh, the, the the UN negotiator uh, has announced that you know he's putting the final touches on the agreement. Uh, and the Saudis very much want this, and, and the U.S. actually very much wants it as well. Um, so they're, you know, they're 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 trying to. Uh, the U.S. is trying to respond to the Houthi attacks, um, uh, but without escalating uh, and allowing the political agreement to to move forward. So that's the real takeaway. I see. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Charles Smith. Oh, thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Charles Schmitz, who's a professor of geography at Towson University and has researched and written extensively on Yemen and its relationships with other nations in, on the Arabian Peninsula and with the United States. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by half past